A couple of years ago, a hit HBO series caused a stir in China. Chernobyl dramatised the famous nuclear meltdown in Soviet Ukraine in the 80s. In the last episode, a nuclear physicist, played by the British actor Jared Harris, testifies at a trial in the incident's aftermath. He says the government lied about how its own failings led to the disaster. Every lie we tell incurs a debt to the truth. Sooner or later, that debt is paid. Soviet leaders had downplayed the meltdown as it was happening, leading to delays in evacuations that exposed millions to harmful radiation. The Soviet Union's mishandling of Chernobyl fueled distrust of the government, hastening its collapse five years later. Flash forward a few decades to 2020, a year after the Chernobyl series came out. People on Chinese social media started quoting the show, including that line about a debt to the truth, as a way of criticising the Chinese Communist Party's COVID response. It had also suppressed early information about the disaster, infuriating millions who were left to bear the consequences. Even President Trump's national security adviser, Robert O'Brien, caught on to the Chernobyl analogy. The cover-up that they did of the virus is going to go down in history along with Chernobyl. We'll see an HBO special about it 10 or 15 years from now. And so we're in a different place with China as we speak today. Maybe they knew how much the comparison would hurt. Xi Jinping was haunted by the collapse of the Soviet Union 30 years earlier, determined never to be China's version of its last leader, Mikhail Gorbachev. And now, China was facing another crisis that, like Chernobyl, cut straight to the heart of the party's credibility. Keep the faith, he told healthcare workers in Wuhan, the city where the outbreak began. We will win this battle. Wuhan will win. The whole of China will win. I'm Sulin Wong from The Economist. This is The Prince, a podcast about China's leader, Xi Jinping. Episode 8. The Great Helmsman. By early 2020, Xi Jinping had ruled China for nearly eight years. He was the most powerful man in the world. But this crisis was one of his own making. A COVID strategy testing the limits of his political machine and his apparent plans to stay on for an unprecedented third term this autumn. Would COVID be Xi Jinping's Chernobyl? In early January of 2020, Chinese state TV carried a story from Wuhan. The Chinese government had reprimanded eight doctors for rumour-mongering. In private chat groups, the doctors had been discussing a new illness in the city. It was causing pneumonia, they'd said, and it looked a lot like the SARS virus, which had broken out in China nearly 20 years earlier. The internet is not outside the law, said a statement from the Wuhan Police Bureau. It said that anyone who spread false information would be dealt with. 
But already, local health authorities had sent urgent notices to hospitals about the outbreak. As state media broadcast news of rumour-mongering doctors, dozens of COVID cases were turning up in Wuhan hospitals. And yet, the city's mayor was assuring residents that human-to-human transmission was limited. My experience living in China has taught me that when the government starts suppressing rumours and saying that there is no disaster, by that time, the disaster has already happened. Murong Xuetun was a well-known author in China. My friends there used to surreptitiously read his books under their desks at school. He wrote racy fiction about sex, drugs and corruption among businessmen and officials, the same wild stuff Xi Jinping would have witnessed in Fujian. And Murong won literary acclaim for it. He was one of those prominent bloggers with millions of followers who was silenced once Xi Jinping came to power. He became a critic of Chinese government censorship. Over the past few years, I have become a sensitive person in China. The authorities often invite me to drink tea. They sit me down and warn me not to make trouble. In November 2019, not long before COVID, knock, 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 two officers turned up at my door in the middle of the night. They took me to the police station. In 2016, I had tweeted two political cartoons about Xi Jinping. The police demanded that I erase them. It was so long ago, I had already forgotten. I never thought they'd show up three years later and order me to delete them. Two cartoons that nobody even remembers. But Murong was going to discover that the coronavirus would be his most sensitive subject yet. Then the news from Wuhan became more and more serious. It began to completely flood WeChat and Weibo. But right as the government was most forcibly saying it could be controlled and aggressively cracking down on so-called rumors, by that time, the virus had already stealthily spread across the world. In late January of 2020, it became clear that the virus was far more serious than local officials had let on. Xi Jinping met with the head of the World Health Organization in Beijing. Xi made assurances about his handling of the outbreak. I'm personally giving the orders, he said. I'm personally making the plans. Xi fired the top two officials in Hubei province and replaced them with his own people. For good or bad, China's COVID response was now Xi's COVID response. Wuhan had finally been locked down on January 23rd. But the virus had escaped. And online, censors couldn't keep up with stories about how the government had suppressed early information about the outbreak. Li Wenliang, one of those eight doctors who'd been punished for talking about the virus, died on February 7th from COVID. The consequences of Xi Jinping's censorship machine had never seemed so clear. Li Wenliang, this person, was called to be a 
the authorities said that Li Wenliang was making up rumors. This thing was released after many people called Li Wenliang But after the coronavirus became widely known, people realized he was actually a whistleblower. His death was like a spark, igniting people's rage. Li Wenliang's death was trending on social media with the hashtags Wuhan government owes Dr. Li Wenliang an apology and we want freedom of speech. In all my years covering China, I'd never seen my WeChat feed so full of anger. This is when people were posting quotes from the Chernobyl show. They were also posting a quote from Murong. The one who holds the firewood for the masses is the one who freezes to death in wind and snow. Everyone's resentment and anger that had been building up exploded in an instant. Social media blew up. People sent post after post expressing their frustration. There was another outpouring of anger in Wuhan on February 7th. That night, a lot of people opened their windows and screamed and whistled into the blackness of the night. They shone torches and the flashlights of their phones into the sky. That night, the shouting could be heard across the whole city. Rage towards the Communist Party was at its peak. I wanted to get inside the city and find the people who had been disappeared by the authorities. I wanted to learn about what they were living through, to hear their stories, and if possible, to turn their stories into a book. On the 6th of April, I slipped into Beijing West Railway Station and boarded the train to Wuhan. I was the only person in the entire train carriage. I've caught hundreds of trains in China in my life, but I'd never seen a train like this one. Police had already been monitoring Murong, which is actually his pen name. His real name is Hao Chun. He knew booking a train ticket to Wuhan would draw attention. As the train entered Hubei province and neared Wuhan, my phone suddenly started ringing. The caller ID was a strange number with only five digits. I'm almost certain that was the police. Sometimes we joke that their customer service that was customer service calling. They knew my plans. He arrived at his hotel in Wuhan and he doused himself in disinfectant. Over the next couple of days, he walked through the empty streets. He passed the hospital where Li Wenliang, the doctor who died of COVID, had worked. He passed the seafood market. He passed Wuhan's virology lab, which was guarded by heavily armed officers. There was this constant sensation 
that people were following you on the street. But he met a few people and joined local WeChat groups. He was looking for stories of life under lockdown. He found one in Jin Feng, a 61-year-old cleaner at a hospital. Towards the end of her shift on the 29th of January, she started to feel unwell. A test showed she was positive for COVID. Her small apartment is nearby the hospital. On her walk home that day, she began to think that instead of seeking treatment, she would just kill herself. Maybe that sounds dramatic in retrospect, but at the time, people were terrified at how serious this new illness might be. Her husband got home from his shift as a hotel security guard and noticed she was upset. What's wrong, he asked. And she blurted out, I've caught the virus. Her husband talked Jin Fung out of killing herself and encouraged her to seek treatment. They went from hospital to hospital and finally found one that would treat her. She got better, but her husband, Bang Si, had caught the virus too. He was stuck at home. Officials, fearful of allowing any exceptions to the lockdown, prevented him from leaving his house to get to hospital. Bang Xi's case was severe. By the time Wuhan started to lock down apartment buildings, Jin Feng pleaded with local officials to send her husband to the hospital. But they dragged their feet. A lot of mistakes were made. By the time Bang Xi was admitted to a hospital, it was too late. Murong included the family's story in the book he was writing about Wuhan. That book's been released by an Australian publisher. The publisher advised him to leave China before the book came out. In case border authorities stopped him from leaving the country, he kept his apartment in Beijing intact. 40 years of stuff, including his personal library and his literary awards. But he got out. He's not sure when he'll get to return. There are some places where if you stand up straight, you get an electric shock. So what happens? Most people learn to live bending over. As time goes by, many believe that standing straight is unnatural. And they learn to hate anyone who tries to stand up straight or anyone who speaks up and says we should live in upright ways. I believe this is China today, a place where you have to live bending over. I remember at the start of COVID, there was a lot of discussion about the TV show Chernobyl that was on HBO. Mm. Do you think that COVID was China's Chernobyl moment? In some ways, I think the Chernobyl accident accelerated the end of the Soviet Union. But I don't think COVID will have the same effect in China. 
完全相反的是 ，Actually, it has had the opposite effect. The Chinese Communist Party has cleverly used this opportunity to increase their control. By early April, the Communist Party had changed the narrative. It called Li Wenliang, the doctor who had died, a loyal party member and a martyr in the country's war against the virus. A state broadcaster said heroes like Li Wenliang had fought, quote, under the strong leadership of the Central Party Committee, with Comrade Xi Jinping at its core. A few months later, China's propaganda machine declared victory over COVID. In part because of the harsh lockdown in Wuhan, cases were all but eliminated in China, and the country was getting back to normal, well ahead of the rest of the world. That September, as the anger over Wuhan waned, Xi Jinping presided over a ceremony in Beijing, celebrating the heroes of China's response. 我国成为疫情发生以来第一个恢复增长的主要经济体。China has become the first major economy to resume growth since the outbreak of COVID, he said. And he went further, crediting China with quick action to contain the virus on behalf of everyone else. China has helped save the lives of tens of millions of people around the world, he said. The borders closed almost completely for a long time, and so as a foreigner living in China, it was a very strange period because it just literally our visas were cancelled. We couldn't come and go at all. I didn't see my own、uh, wife for 22 months. I didn't see my son for two years. David Rennie is the Economist's Beijing bureau chief. Although I joined the Economist in 2020, I didn't get to meet David until two years later. He was stuck inside mainland China, and I was stuck outside. And there was a kind of window where. There was quite a chunk of 2021 that China was a very, very large bubble of zero COVID. There was no COVID basically within China's borders, and within China, things became almost normal again. The party achieved that through a massive expansion of its surveillance apparatus. Phone apps tracked everyone's movements and forced anyone who could conceivably have COVID, contacts of cases and contacts of those contacts, into isolation within a matter of hours. Positive cases were sent to massive quarantine facilities. So now, it's for COVID reasons that every time you get on a train,、uh, a plane, get in a taxi, go into a supermarket, go into a public building, that you scan a QR code with your smartphone and your movements are logged in real time. This extraordinary scientific technological achievement is also an astonishing tool for a police state that had ambitions to have control over the Chinese public. And you know you'd have to be pretty naive to expect all of those systems to go away. I don't think that would have all been possible without Xi Jinping's revitalization of the Communist Party. One of Xi Jinping's favorite slogans is "Dang Zheng Jun Ming Xue, Dong Nan Xi Bei Zhong." Dang is the leader of everything. Government, the military, society, and schools. North, south, east, and west. The party leads them all. His relentless ideological campaigns and national crackdowns have enforced discipline and made clear the consequences of defiance. So, for party officials and citizens alike, signing up is simply easier than dissenting, even when the results seem illogical or cruel. 
That's partly the story of what's happened to the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. But it's also why those local officials in Wuhan prevented Jin Feng's husband from going to hospital. Better to let a man die at home than defy party orders. Repressive? Sure. But effective? Absolutely. At least at the time. By and large, zero COVID in China held up through late 2020 and throughout 2021. And then, in early 2022, Hong Kong's quarantine, which had been one of the world's longest and strictest, failed. The Omicron variant had gotten in and was spreading across the city. By late February, Hong Kong was reporting tens of thousands of new cases a day. It would soon have the world's highest COVID death rate per capita. And what happened in Hong Kong, I think, gave the Chinese leadership a massive scare because you have a city of 7.5 million people. Uh, They eventually had about 10,000 people uh, tragically died, of whom about 95% were seniors who had not been properly vaccinated, people over 60, 65. The problem with that statistic is that the mainland of China has about 100 million people over the age of 60 who have not been properly vaccinated. The Communist Party had refused to approve mRNA vaccines from Pfizer and Moderna, insisting on less effective made-in-China alternatives. It seems they didn't want foreigners to save the day. And for all sorts of reasons, the Chinese public was hesitant about taking even the Chinese vaccines. What was the rush in a COVID-free country anyway? Into that vulnerable population came Omicron. In April of 2022, a Shanghai rapper called Astro posted a video. He was performing a song he wrote called New Slaves. After several thousand cases of the Omicron variant had turned up in Shanghai, authorities shut the city's 25 million residents inside their homes. Astro saying the healthiest shut in their homes like they're sick. But the hospitals have shut out the really sick. People in Shanghai died because they struggled to get treated for anything other than COVID. Food became scarce. Residents were spending hours on grocery delivery apps to score something to eat. Guys in hazmat suits beat people in the streets for breaking the rules as the city packed others into mass quarantine facilities. Shanghai's leaders were single-minded. Get the case count back to zero whatever it takes. The uniformed only care about their careers, says Astro, and don't give a shit about life or dignity. Astro's video was deleted from the Chinese internet. Censors actually scrubbed most recent social media content related to the lockdown. For a while, even the word Shanghai was unsearchable. Meanwhile, state media called the party's approach to the lockdown trailblazing. Megaphones strapped to robotic dogs broadcast orders to stay inside. A drone overhead told residents. Suppress your soul's desire for freedom. Meanwhile, scenes of chaos in Shanghai were spreading online. 
People living in apartment towers were shouting out their windows, send us supplies. Also making rounds online was leaked audio of a phone call from a Shanghai resident to a local party official. Chinese people are really very easygoing, he says. But if you mess with their ability to feed themselves and survive, that's a step too far. China's Statistics Bureau said Shanghai's economy shrunk 14% in the second quarter of 2022. And it wasn't just Shanghai that was locked down. By mid-April, tens of millions of people were under COVID restrictions in several cities. Across China, the unemployment rate among young people was approaching one in five. The economic cost, the price of China's zero-COVID strategy, that was getting harder and harder to sustain. Over the past 40 years, we've worked hard to build up a little bit of wealth, the caller says. But look at how we've suffered over the past month. It's not just that we've come to a halt. We've put the car in reverse and we've stepped on the gas. By mid-2022, it looked as though Xi Jinping had painted himself into a corner. His COVID strategy didn't seem sustainable. Populations under rolling restrictions were getting restless, maybe even uncontrollable. And that sense of a Chinese economy going backwards after decades of astounding growth threatened to eat away at the Communist Party's support. But the alternative was horrible. Opening up could leave millions of vulnerable people dead. But Xi Jinping's position wasn't quite as terrible as it seemed. More on that in a moment. If you're not an Economist subscriber, you're missing out. I work with the best China correspondents in the business. Every week, they write about all kinds of fascinating China stories, often in very difficult circumstances. To read their coverage and so much more, you'll need a subscription to The Economist. It's really easy to sign up. Visit economist.com slash chinapod for our best offer. The link is in the notes for this episode. Now, on with the story. We heard an absolute ton about the lockdown in Shanghai, with reason, because it was a very strict lockdown and it's a very large city. Tons of people in Shanghai were blogging about how miserable they were at being locked down. The challenge as a foreign correspondent is knowing how representative that kind of conversation is. While the rest of us were watching videos from Wuhan or Shanghai, David was learning how everybody else was feeling in China. He remembers meeting a guy right at the beginning of the outbreak before the propaganda had its chance to shape public opinion on these new restrictions. And he said, you know, you foreigners, you wouldn't put up with this. But, uh, you know, we are testing all of our migrant workers who work in Wuhan. They've now been told to stay at home, not go out, not meet any of their family. It's Chinese New Year, but tough for them. And he said, that's what we do because we're disciplined people. You're not like us. You know, in the West, you'd be whining about this, but we're much more disciplined than you. This was like day two of the pandemic. Later, Chinese state messaging would take a very similar line. David says propaganda is at its most effective when it reinforces things people already believe to be true. And so the idea that the West is basically a bit spoilt and a bit selfish and a bit decadent is kind of true. It has been a a gift 
to the propaganda machine, people in China, they basically think that America or Europe is like a kind of zombie movie. There's like bodies in the streets. Plenty of Chinese people are very unhappy about, you know, maybe their business is in trouble or maybe their shop went bust or they're fed up with these controls. But they also think that if they were in the outside world, they'd be dead by now. More than two years later, the Communist Party is still pushing that narrative. What does that tell us about Xi Jinping's form of leadership in China? If you look at the zero COVID policy, I think there are some legitimate lessons you can draw about Xi Jinping. You can say he believes that order is the sort of the alpha and omega of Chinese Communist Party rule, that order and stability come before everything else. For a long time, there was a kind of lazy idea in the West that the Chinese Communist Party is a dictatorship, but it delivers economic benefits and growth for its public, and therefore that is the source of their legitimacy. And actually, right now, they're willing to take surprising risks with economic growth in the short term because there's a still deeper form of legitimacy, which is, we will keep you safe. We will keep you alive. In what scenario would COVID become a crisis for the party? They have been okay until date because a majority of the Chinese people weren't locked down at any given moment. And a majority of the Chinese people believe that the alternative of kind of doing it the Western way would lead to mass deaths. And so, yes, COVID has been extremely brutal at any given time. You know, a bunch of cities are on some form of lockdown. But if you're the Communist Party and you're looking at a series of unattractive alternatives, people whining and moaning in Shanghai because their lockdown is embarrassing. But if 1.3 billion of your 1.4 billion people are currently living in a kind of world without COVID, you'll take that. It's a numbers game. But that numbers game can go against you if you add up all of the people who have been locked down or lost their jobs or lost their business because of the zero COVID policy. If that number gets too big, the kind of the aggregate number of losers versus winners, then that does start to become a major crisis. The Chinese Communist Party is in some ways a giant utilitarian kind of philosophical experiment. So that idea that a good government delivers benefits for the majority is the entire of their plan. But it's not just about the numbers. It's about whether those numbers can organise. And after 10 years in power, Xi Jinping has designed a propaganda, censorship and surveillance machine to prevent those sorts of threats from coalescing. Even with an economy in crisis, Xi has a huge buffer. And in 2022, he might need it. On October 16th, the Chinese Communist Party will hold its National Congress. The Party Congress comes once every five years, and it's the biggest event on the Chinese political calendar. It's where the party unveils China's next batch of leaders. One of the single most interesting and important questions is, will Xi Jinping get a third term, and then who might succeed him? Or maybe he won't choose a successor at all, and we will know when Xi Jinping will lead the next standing committee onto a red-carpeted stage with kind of potted ferns in the Great Hall of the People, and they will walk on in order of seniority. If one among that small group isn't too young, isn't too old, and doesn't walk out too far behind Xi Jinping, then that might just be Xi's replacement in five years' time. And if none fit that bill, then just how long Xi plans to rule remains an open question. This is how the world will find out who will rule China, now and into the future. Why do we worry about succession? Well, it's not just a parlour game. Succession crises have always been 
the most painful moments in the Chinese Communist Party's history. And many of the crises that foreigners remember, like the, the Tiananmen Square democracy protests that were then kind of brutally crushed in June 1989, those were actually to do with factional fights within the leadership. The reason that Tiananmen Square was so dangerous for the party was not just that there were a very large number of young people in the sort of ceremonial heart of the capital city. It was also that the leadership was divided. David says similar crises threatened the party in 1976 after Mao died, and again in the run-up to 2012 when Bo Si Lai, the charismatic leader of Chongqing, attempted to split the very top of the party. It's a weird analogy, but it's a bit like kind of when a hermit crab leaves one shell and kind of crawls into the next one. There's a kind of bit between the two shells where it's just like a little soft crustacean. Um, It's very dangerous, and it's where the factions get to make their move. And so even if Xi Jinping emerges at the end of this process with his third term and perhaps doesn't even name a successor so that he is not a lame duck, to get to that point, he is going to go through certain moments of intense internal vulnerability. So it's actually succession, rather than COVID, that could be the party's next big crisis. But so far, Xi Jinping is pulling it off. She is betting that the problem with Mao is not that too much power is in the hands of one man. He's betting that that can work out just fine if the right guy is that one man. And it just so happens that the right guy happens to be him. In the run-up to the party congress, officials have been studying a new textbook on Xi Jinping's vision for China. The country's on track for its great rejuvenation, a modern, strong and prosperous nation by 2049, an advanced economy and one of the world's great powers. Those plans would fall apart, according to the book, without that tight grip of the Communist Party and specifically the grip of its general secretary. Not since Mao Zedong have China's leaders so clearly associated the country's success with one man's rule. State media and top party lieutenants are dusting off nicknames for Xi Jinping that they used to reserve for Mao. Among them, the Great Helmsman. You know, to overextend the metaphor, the ship is going through an extraordinary global storm. You have the domestic storm of zero COVID. You have the economy slowing down. You have a terrible relationship with the United States. You have intense suspicion of China's global ambitions because of its partnership with Vladimir Putin. And at the same moment, the great helmsman is trying to steer the ship through a kind of very narrow, rocky passage to achieve something very difficult, which is to get a third term and perhaps not even name a successor. Of course... Whether he achieves that won't be up to the Chinese people. But they'll be watching. There isn't going to be an election. There isn't going to be a referendum. But at some level, this is the year in which the idea of more power forever for Xi Jinping is kind of the big question of the year. And I've been a political journalist for, you know, 20-something years. And in any country, whether it's a democracy or a dictatorship, probably the most important two questions you can ask anyone are, Do you think the country is on the right track or the wrong track? And do you think your kids will have a better life than you've had? And as long as the answer is right track and my kids will have a better life, then governments, you know, don't have to worry that much. And in China, for the longest time, people had a sense that for all of their, you know, unhappiness about local corruption or the thuggishness of the police or the polluting factory that was poisoning their local river, Broadly, things were getting better, that they've had decades of economic growth and their kids were going to have a better life than they do. 
I remember that feeling. I first arrived in China a few years before Xi Jinping became leader. Back then, the country's track felt like the right one. Now I'm on the outside, peering in, straining to listen for those same signs of hope. In late May, authorities in Shanghai said they'd be lifting the city's lockdown within days. After a gruelling couple of months, relief was coming. That relief wouldn't last long. China's zero COVID strategy had been rebranded Dynamic Zero. Officials would be locking down buildings and neighbourhoods to contain local outbreaks. And not a week and a half after Shanghai's reopening, millions in the city would be back under restrictions. But for that brief period in the spring of 2022, people living in Shanghai had reason to be optimistic. In the final days of the citywide lockdown, residents of Yenqing Road gathered in the street and they sang. It's nighttime in the video. The scene is illuminated by a streetlight, soft and yellow. Most of the few dozen people are masked, not standing too near each other. They formed a semicircle around a keyboard player. There are adults, children, pets. Two people sit together on a skateboard, rocking side to side to the music. The song was a charity single from the 1980s, the Chinese-speaking world's version of We Are The World and Do They Know It's Christmas. It's called Tomorrow Will Be Better. But will tomorrow be better? And for who? Like the many China correspondents who were kicked out before me, I'm moving on. After this podcast comes out, I'm getting on a plane to Singapore. My new beat will be Southeast Asia. This series might be the last bit of China journalism I do for a long time. People in China don't have this easy option. Xi Jinping's political project is about protecting the many in China at the expense of the few, no matter the cost. And only the Chinese Communist Party, he believes, is up to the task. In Xi's view, only the party should be allowed to decide what the needs of the many are. But maybe you're a Uyghur like Abdueli, or an idealistic university student. Or perhaps you're just unlucky enough to be in the wrong city at the wrong time, like Jinfeng and her husband. It's not hard to end up on the wrong side of that line, or at least come dangerously close, sometimes without even realising it. As neighbours in Shanghai sang, Red and blue lights were flashing just outside the video's frame. Police had arrived, but they didn't intervene. Online, social media users would later commend the officers for their restraint. They let the song finish before telling everyone to go home. The Prince is produced by Sam Colbert, Claire Reed, Barclay Bram and me. Our sound designer is Wei Dong Lin. 
with original music by Darren Ng. Our executive producer is John Shields. We couldn't have made this without the help of some very brave people we can't name. A lot of our colleagues at The Economist helped us in all kinds of ways. Thank you to Sandra Shmueli, David Rennie, James Miles, Jeremy Page, Roger McShane, Gaddy Epstein, Alice Sue, Don Wineland, Gabriel Crosley, Simon Cox, Simon Rabinovich, Rosie Blau, John Prideau, Alize Jean-Baptiste, Lauren Kelly, and The Economist's Editor-in-Chief, Zanny minton Beddoes. Thank you also to Selena Shannon, Dan Stein, Lily Hallett, and Lillian Chia. We stood on the shoulders of some brilliant journalists and experts who've done great work on Xi Jinping in China. They include Joseph Turigian, Alfred Chan, Richard McGregor, and Lauren Hilgers. And thank you to the many people we interviewed for this podcast, whose voices we just didn't have time to hear. Stay subscribed to The Prince on your podcast app for bonus material later this year, after the Party Congress. And for more China coverage, you can subscribe to The Economist through our special offer at economist.com slash chinapod.